Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. Solving the Puzzle is based on Dr. Karazian's more than 20 years of experience working with patients throughout the U.S. and Europe. His exhaustive review of scientific research, his own published peer review research, and clinical models he has innovated through trial and error in working with thousands of complex patient cases. In Solving the Puzzle, Dr. Karazian discusses the impact of diet, nutrition, lifestyle, mental and emotional states, and nutraceuticals in managing chronic health conditions, teaching you about strategies hard-won through decades of clinical practice and research. Dr. Karazian's goal is to inform you about effective models for so-called mystery symptoms and conditions so you can regain control of your health and your life. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Hi, everyone. Today we are doing a top 10 triggers for autoimmune disease. You know, when people have autoimmune disease, one of the key things that uh, is always an issue is what's, what's activating and triggering their autoimmune response. Sometimes people get into remission where they have their autoimmune disease calm down. And other times they really can have a significant flare up and really have some severe symptoms that really takes them out for a period of time. So if you're dealing with autoimmune disease, there's some things you have to, you have to understand about it. Now, the problem with autoimmune diseases today is like when you look at all the things that are happening in these different chat rooms and Facebook pages and so forth, social media, is that every, there's just an emphasis, such an emphasis on removing foods and foods and taking supplements and not really as much emphasis on other really common triggers. So what I'd like to do today is go over some of these concepts and then we can open up for questions and answers and let me share with you a uh, presentation and then we can go from there. So, so here I put together a few slides just to make some concepts uh, easier to understand. It, it seems the uh, feedback that we've gotten is that um, when people actually get a chance to see the images, it, it makes everything much, much easier. So I put this uh, together until we go through it. Okay, so let's go over the top 10 reasons why people have autoimmunity. So. And also, just so you know, we have our new course launched, Autoimmunity Solving the Puzzle. And it's just a comprehensive course that really teach you information about diet, nutrition, lifestyle, sugars, how to deal with relapse remission, uh, how nutraceuticals work for various conditions, why certain nutraceuticals don't work for certain conditions, um, how to develop a team, how to develop a plan, just all the things that I thought was really important for the average person with autoimmunity to know uh, and just kind of simplifying all the research into really easy um, to understand concepts. So if you go to Dr. K News, you can see that course is now available. Okay, so here's the first important concept. When you look at the top, you know, top 10 reasons, the first thing is that there's no scale from mild to severe or from one to 10 for the severe of an autoimmune trigger. Each person suffering from autoimmune, autoimmune will have their own individualized response to each trigger. So that being said, is like when you're looking at when you're looking at autoimmunity and you're looking at the trigger, for example, sleep will be the first thing we talk about. You may have a uh, significant response if you lose sleep, if you have autoimmune disease, and or you may not. So each person has a has significant uh, severities based on different triggers. So you know, there's one thing is 
when you look at people that are suffering from autoimmunity, even the same autoimmune disease, and even within the same family members uh, with the same autoimmune disease, for some of them, a dietary trigger could be substantial. For others, it could be a lifestyle trigger. And, and it varies. And sometimes it can change over time as you're, as you go through your lifespan, when you're and you're, you, when you're lung, let's say, let's say you were diagnosed with an autoimmune disease when you were 30 and, and if you lost sleep, it was no big issue, but it, you know, maybe you're 45 now. And now if you lose sleep, you definitely have a trigger for, for your autoimmune disease. So in the literature, in, in the autoimmune disease literature, there's some very uh, good research and, and, and known mechanisms of how sleep really impacts autoimmunity. This is a diagram. It's, it's kind of complex. It's just really showing you the inflammatory cascade and genes turning on towards the inflammatory response, promoting inflammation and then triggering autoimmunity. But one of the things to understand about autoimmune disease is you really have to, you have to really look at how sleep impacts you. And you may not know because you may not be getting proper sleep. The biggest mistakes that I've seen patients make with sleep is they just, they're just uh, not letting their brain calm down. They're still on their computers or still on their phone late at night. And this really doesn't allow their brain to rest. So we really want to make sure that you're getting adequate sleep. So sometimes people ask what's adequate sleep. Adequate sleep would be you basically wake up on your own. You don't have to have some some type of device wake you up. If you wake up at, at a time and you just feel rested, uh, that would be adequate, adequate sleep. Some people may have never experienced that their whole life, but that's really what the goal is with autoimmunity. And if you haven't had adequate sleep and you're dealing with autoimmunity, you may really put some effort into trying to improve your improve your sleep. And it may take you, you know, a week or two to really get to really get set into a routine that allows you to have adequate sleep. So, you know, some people say, well, I can only get six hours, I can only get eight hours. It's just I just, you know, I'm not used to it. Well, you have to kind of make your body used to it. So if you if you're dealing with autoimmunity, you really want to look at look at this mechanism itself. But for the most part, you have to understand that when you're sleeping, your immune system is actually modulating and priming. So there's different effects on the immune system than when you're awake than when you're asleep. So when you're asleep, there's different hormones like melatonin and cortisol and, and different types of cytokines or cell messenger proteins that turn on and turn off in a cycle through your REM cycles that then help modulate your, your normal uh, immune response. And when you're not getting enough sleep, these things tend to get, get to be disrupted and then it really promotes an inflammatory response, which can be a trigger. So here you can see, you know, lack of sleep can increase inflammation, which is right. Increased cytokine expression. These are all things that promote autoimmunity, break down the blood brain barrier. Uh, it can do the same thing to the, to the gut barrier. It can impact blood flow to the brain. It can, it can really have a significant impact towards your systemic inflammatory response. So, you know, if you're dealing with autoimmunity, you know, one of the things to, to think about is not just focus on, let's say, your diet only and gluten. This, this, could be, this could be a big deal for you. And it's something you definitely want to invest in some time in. Okay, another one is physical activity. So there's a lot of research that shows physical activity has a significant impact in autoimmunity and sedentary lifestyle can be a trigger. So if you don't move, that can be a reason why your autoimmunity is constantly expressed. So movement, where you're doing any type of exercise uh, at all, seems to have a benef beneficial effect. And it seems to scale up until the point you start to overtrain. So um, you may notice, you know, if you walk, you know, X amount of steps per day, 
that you have some impact. And if you're sedentary, it may be less, or you just a period of time you're not getting exercise at all, especially during um, current pandemic issues. However, if you maybe increase your exercise intensity, you may notice your body systemic inflammation and autoimmune response actually go down. So not to get into significant uh, immunology pathways, but there's different immune cells here that are illustrated. And basically what they show is that when you move and when you exercise, that there's a release of growth factors that have a really powerful effect on modulating the immune system. There's opioids that are released um, through exercise, through movement that impact um, immune cells in a modulating balancing way. And then um, as you, as you exercise, your blood vessels release things like um, nitric oxide, which calms down inflammation. So overall, we see pretty much every part of the immune system, um, all the different you know, T cells and B cells and macrophages, they call cell-mediated immunity, humoral immunity, all positively impacted with movement. Now, the only, the only thing that you should know is that it is, it is linear. So they're finding that if you do exercise even with higher intensities, you have better outcomes. So if you can um, increase your heart rate, let's say you're doing a casual walk, but if you can jog, that can have a better effect on you. Um, or if you can do any type of extra activity to challenge your physical system, that would be, that would be great. But there is a point where you can actually crash. So if you overtrain, then you can absolutely crash. So the, the easiest way to really figure out like what's the right amount of intensity level for you is to go as hard as you can with some intensity and brief bursts of like high intensity exercise for a minute or two can be very beneficial than even doing a casual walk, or maybe if you're walking or doing a jog, you just do a burst for 30 seconds to a minute, there's a very powerful long lasting effect on the immune system that you just can't get with low intensity. And uh, if you if you get to the point where you can't recover the next day from a workout, then that's probably a sign that you're heading the wrong way. So you should be able to, now listen, your muscles could be sore and that's fine. But if you get to the point where you're like, if you start to exercise, you get depression, you start to get injuries, you're not feeling fully recovered, then that's a sign that the exercise intensity is too much. So you really want to right at the threshold of getting enough movement in where, you know, you do feel the workout and the next day you can do that same workout all over again without having your performance go down. If your performance goes down where you can't run as the same distance or walk or jog, whatever exercise you're doing as well, as each day goes on, that means you're really, you're really overtraining. And, you know, you, and people thought, well, you have to be very careful with also having um, periods of recovery. So some people may not be able to work out seven days a week. Some may have to like work out three days a week, take a break for a day, and then figure out their intensity level. But it's very, very clear uh, in the autoimmune disease um, literature that sedentary lifestyle will absolutely be a factor in increasing the activity of autoimmunity and any kind of movement will be make a big difference. And they've even studied this with patients that have rheumatoid arthritis where they have severe joint pain and just movement actually inflames and irritates their joint. They actually find out even when they exercise with their joint swelling and inflammation, um, their joint pain and inflammation swelling go down <laughs> over time. And it actually has a very powerful immune modeling response. So that's another thing to you know think about as you look at triggers for the autoimmune response. Another major driver of, of autoimmunity is just microbiome diversity. So, you know, how diverse your microbiome or bacteria is in your gut has an impact on whether you have a greater expression of your autoimmunity or if your autoimmunity is placed in check. So your, your diet 
can really impact your microbiome. And not only your diet, but for example, even exercise, like we just talked about earlier, that can modulate autoimmunity can also modulate your microbiome. So having a healthy gastrointestinal tract where you have the right pH, the right environment uh, to really impact your microbiome is really critical. Now, diversifying your microbiome doesn't just mean taking probiotics. Diversifying your microbiome means like your, your, the environment in your large intestine, in your gut, has enough pH, enough um, uh, modulating hormones, uh, immune activation, where it can really create this scenario where you can have healthy amounts of bacterial populations grow. So it's not just simply you take probiotics and you got this covered. Um, if you have bloating, distension, heartburn, um, you know, then there's something wrong with your gastrointestinal system. And th- all those things can impact the diversity of microbiome. And if you need any help with what to do with uh, your, your gut, if, you have, if you're not having healthy gastrointestinal function, we also, in addition to the autoimmune puzzle course, we do have a course on the gut puzzle on the gastrointestinal system. And uh, those are all, that's also available at Dr. K News. So um, unhealthy microbiomes typically happen when um, you're just not eating enough diverse foods in your diet, diverse plant fibers in your diet, um, eating really high saturated fats, having lots of alcohol, those things have an impact in the microbiome. Um, if you have things like um, ulcer, if you have a, like a early gallbladder or gallstone thick bile issue where you're burping and can't tolerate fats, if you have uh, indigestion or heartburn, um, those are things that are, that are going to throw off your gastrointestinal pH and impact your microbiome. But we know that the bacteria in the gastrointestinal system produce what are called post, uh, 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 postbiotics and postbiotics or messenger proteins and messenger compounds that then have an impact on modulating immune system function. So, um, you know, one of the things, you know, people focus on is constantly trying to take various, you know, probiotics, or anti-inflammatory substance for autoimmunity, but the bigger picture is how you really improve your overall GI tract. And we have a saying from north to south to improve your to improve your health. So not having a diverse microbiome is a key factor. And you know, in a clinical setting, when you work with patients that have um, that are dealing with autoimmunity, we always do a comprehensive GI panel, and we can get a good idea of their microbiome and how much bacterial species they have, and see how diverse it is. And that is is, is a key factor and a key mechanism to to improve. When, when it comes to, to improving your tolerance. Now, a very simple thing you can do also is just start your day with some fiber. Uh, if you can take some like, uh, um, like flaxseed and psyllium husks um, and kind of mix them together uh, just to increase your total fiber intake, that has a very powerful impact on improving uh, microbiome diversity. Now, another one is stress. We all have stress. Uh, stress has been shown to really trigger the... Uh, inflammatory immune response and be a factor in autoimmunity and general inflammation. So, you know, it's something that we all have. It's just a matter of how severe it is get and how do you adapt to stress. So if you are not adapting to stress well, because you don't have a social group to talk to, um, you're not able to, to exercise, or you're not able to um, have some kind of support, uh, to dampen your stress response, it can really be a key factor in, in autoimmunity. So everyone has stress. And for some people with autoimmunity, like stress would be a bigger factor than other people. So it's something that's commonly overlooked. 
Right? It's something I think every single human being is dealing with on a regular basis. And for some people, stress isn't isn't big trigger for their autoimmunity, and for others, it's 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 a it's a key trigger of, of what's happening to them. So that's something to to be aware of. Healthy relationships at work, uh, healthy relationships with family are all a huge factor on the expression of of autoimmunity. So that's another key trigger that you should be aware of. Plastics, bisphenol A. We we did a whole talk on this. Um, last week, but we went into the very specifics of, of BPA. So BPA, uh, bisphenol A, and even BPA-free products that are things like bisphenol F um, are all are all potentially triggers. And, and I try to summarize this, this this paper that I published a while ago were uh, how BPA really triggers autoimmunity. So I'm not going to get into all the deep concepts, but if you're dealing with autoimmunity, you have to really make an effort to reduce your chemical load. And one of the significant chemicals that we get exposed to on a regular basis that can be a trigger for autoimmunity is really um, uh, BPA and plastics. So, you know, we talked about in that last time not to drink through a coffee lid because the coffee lid uh, heat will release BPA uh, into your liquid as you drink it. Um, really trying to use uh, metal bottles, uh, ceramic bottles instead of plastic bottles, uh, liquids stored in heat, liquids within this very acidic solution will, will cause BPA to leach into the solution. So those are other things that you have to look at. So, you know, sometimes uh, it's, it's more than just being gluten free. You really have to reduce your chemical load and plastics are a big part of that. And then we, we know the most popular things that I think most people with autoimmune disease is gluten. Gluten is definitely a trigger for many people with autoimmune disease. Some people have significant responses to, to gluten if they have actually celiac disease. And celiac disease is really not just gluten sensitivity, it's, it's gluten sensitivity, but there's a genotype that makes T cells very, very reactive. So they have a gene type um, it's, it's called the HLA-DQ2 or HLA-DQ8 gene type that makes gluten exposure react in such a way with something called transglutaminase that really activates T cells. For some people, this can be a significant and severe response. For other people, they may not have the celiac disease gene, but gluten is still an inflammatory protein. For many people have autoimmunity, they seem to do a lot better when they go gluten-free. So gluten is a commonly known uh, trigger as well. And then the other food proteins that typically get overlooked uh, are nightshades. Um, so nightshades are foods such as potato, things you see on this list, eggplants, potatoes, uh, tomatoes, uh, bell peppers, uh, peppers in general. These all have alkaloids that are compounds that have been shown to be a trigger for some gene types with autoimmunities. Not everyone with autoimmunity will be sensitive to nightshades, but people, especially with um, rheumatoid or joint autoimmune diseases seem to be extremely, extremely sensitive to nightshades. So even though they're eating a healthy salad, you know, the little tomato in there or the eggplant they're eating could be a reason they're having continued um, reactions with autoimmunity. And as we continue with foods, the other classification of foods that's shown to be a major trigger for some, some gene types with autoimmunity, but not everyone are lectins and lectins are basically, um, proteins that you'll find in beans and legumes and, and foods with like nuts and foods that have seeds in them, like peppers and watermelon and cantaloupe. So foods that have seeds in them tend to be major uh, lectin-based foods. So, you know, this has led to what's called the autoimmune, autoimmune paleo diet, which is basically avoiding gluten, dairy, nightshades and lectins. And, and for some people, they have to really go through that degree of uh, food removal to be able to, to control their autoimmune response. Another overlooked one that's been 
popping up all throughout the literature is um, air pollution. Air pollution has been shown to be a significant factor in triggering autoimmunity. And um, there are now apps that you can measure your, your, your air, air quality uh, in where you live in the zip code or wherever you're going to be in. And it can give you an alert if uh, the air particle uh, levels are way too high and unhealthy for you. So you should be aware of those. Now, the biggest problem of air pollution isn't really outdoor air pollution, it's indoor air pollution. So if you live in a home and you have lots of uh, dust, or even if you have mycotoxins because you have some mold or, or other things in your home, or you're releasing a lot of uh, uh, formaldehyde or chemicals from your carpet or um, from the air you breathe in, then that can be an ongoing issue for autoimmunity. So circulation is really, really critical. We always to you know, have patients that are dealing with autoimmunity consider getting a very good filter for their home or their, at least for sure in their bedroom where they serve would be an ideal way to, to really reduce your um, air pollution issues uh, in your home. And then another thing related to air pollution is benzene. And benzene is, uh, you know, the compound you find in secondhand smoke and a car exhaust. So if you're stuck in traffic, let's say, and you have lots of car exhaust and you're breathing all in, that could be a major trigger for autoimmunity. Um, if you're in a room with lots of secondhand smoke or someone smoking around you, that can be a trigger as well. Now you have to understand it. It's not going to be an immediate trigger. Like if you get exposed to these chemicals, it's not like as soon as you're exposed to secondhand smoke, your autoimmunity is going to flare up. You can be exposed and then for the next day or two, have your autoimmunity flare up. So these, these exposures to pollutants and compounds aren't going to cause an immediate response. They're going to cause a response uh, by creating free radicals, oxidative stress, that can, can show up hours or even a day or so later. But again, you want to decrease your chemical load. So things like um, just staying away from secondhand smoke, making sure you're not stuck in traffic with lots of car, exa car exhaust exposure, having a filter in your home, um, all are things that you can look at as ways to reduce your autoimmunity if, if, you're, if you're looking at ways to look at triggers. Then infections, another key thing with autoimmunity, and infections are really interesting. Some infections flare up autoimmunity. Some infections turn on autoimmunity for the first time. Some infections create what's called cross-reactivity with the antibodies against the pathogen are so similar to your own tissue that it promotes what's called the molecular mimicry response. Some infections have no impact at all with autoimmunity and some infections actually calm down autoimmunity. So this is really more complex, uh, but it's just something to know that, you know, whether it's a pathogen in the gut or a virus or bacteria, infections have some role. So those are some main things. And the other thing I didn't cover, but I should cover because it's really important is blood sugar spikes. If your blood sugar levels fluctuate and they go up and down, that can also be a very common trigger for autoimmunity. And uh, so if you're like hypoglycemic and you get shaky, lightheaded, and irritable, that can be a factor why you have autoimmunity. And if, if you have uh, like insulin resistance, you're pre-diabetic, you eat and you crave sugar and you pass out and have what's called an insulin surge, that's also another trigger for autoimmunity. So, you know, as a clinician working with autoimmune disease for, I don't know, over 20 something years, uh, I can tell you when we're trying to really help someone get into remission, it's not just getting off gluten and kind of being gluten-free. It's really about looking at some of these other triggers and factors. Um, it, we talk about a lot of this in the autoimmune puzzle course, uh, we talk about uh, how to how to like reduce your chemical load, whether chemicals are involved, uh, how to like pick the right diet for yourself. Um, and if you need some help with that, please check out that course. And hopefully we can answer some questions you have. Okay, what do we got? Okay, we got a few. 
So um, someone was asking about a little bit of clarification. When you're talking about air pollution, it was, um, do they, can that also mean forest fires? Yes. So, you know, air pollution, forest fires, it's really this thing called small particulate particles. Um, and what they do is they, what air pollution and small small particles do is they activate your lung mucosa. So just like we have a gut barrier, we have what's called a pulmonary barrier. And our pulmonary barrier, our lung, our lung barrier has these dendritic cells and immune cells all, all, all on the front of it, just like the gut barrier. And these particulate compounds, whether it's from a forest fire or from things, industrialized compounds, whatever it may be, activate these dendritic cells and it triggers an immune response, just like if you had an inflamed gut. So you can get a subtly inflamed lung a barrier, even though you may not have a lung infection, and then that can trigger your autoimmune response. So, you know, if you're around those things, you may need to wear a mask with a filter. Uh, um, you can get those heavy industrialized masks. Uh, if you have to go outside and you have autoimmune diseases, if you have like a fire, fire around you with all the air quality being compromised and um, you definitely want to make sure you have a filter in your home. And again, for some people, um, air pollution, air quality will be a major trigger for their autoimmunity and for others, it may not be as much, but um, you will, you have to experiment with it. And if you notice that if you get an app, like there's lots of apps available that look at your air quality, you can start comparing the air quality to how you, how you felt that day with autoimmunity. If you see really, really high particle counts and that's days where you don't feel as well, then you really may have this association between getting your pulmonary system activated and upregulated for those things. Okay. Okay. And speaking to that, do you have any recommendations for a good air filter or what should people look for? So basically when you're looking for a good air filter, uh, as long as it's, it's a HIPAA, H-E-P-A filter, it's good. And if you go to like Amazon or any of these online stores, you can easily find those. And then there's a standard that that that, that uh, is established with a HIPAA filter. And HIPAA filters can get rid of mycotoxins from like mold. They can, can reduce the small particulate uh, matters in your home and dust. And um, they're really the ones to use. Cool. Okay. Thank you. So um, Marina's asking, is going on a very restrict, I think restrictive diet, like autoimmune diet, damage the diversity of the gut? Would the path be to remove, I guess it would have be to remove all and then start building oral tolerance, like with the mashup, or would it be possible to would it be possible then to revert to some of the some of the intolerances? Yeah, I mean that's a good point. So the question being if someone, you know, is going on a full restrictive diet where they're avoiding all gluten, dairy, night, nightshades, lectin, following the, the autoimmune paleo diet, um, will that impact the microdiversity? And the answer is yes, it will have an impact. So the so what you have to do is really make sure that you still continue to have lots of fiber and diverse fibers to keep your microbiome diversity going. Now, there's a, there's a lot of interesting information coming out. You know, there's some people that are finding like a carnivore diet where people just eat meat for a while, actually may have an impact on their diversity, even though there's no fibers in there. So it's not as complicated. It's, it's, it's really complex. We're still learning a lot about it. We certainly know, um, with the exception of things like a carnivore diet, where people are just eating meat and it seemed to have some really impact on their autoimmune response that don't have any fiber. Uh, having, having a healthy, diverse source of fiber seems to be very important. So even if you like um, cut down on your uh, food proteins, 
or vegetable sources because they have nitrates or lectins in them. There's still a lot of diverse vegetables that you can consume and you just want to, you just have to make an effort to do it. So in our autoimmune um, course and in our 3D, we call it 3D immune tolerance course that Dr. Kidd used these programs we put together. We talk about what you mentioned, which is the veggie mashup. We have lots of different vegetables. We grind them all up in a food processor, add a couple of teaspoons um, to water and drink it or, and it seems to work really well to do that. Okay. Um, very informative. Can you please comment on the role of, or the use of fasting in healing the gut issues and or reducing arthritis flare? Yeah. So fasting is a really effective way to calm down an autoimmune flare up. And when we say fasting, we got to clarify a few things with fasting. There's short-term fasting and there's long-term fasting. So any, anything past three days is long-term fasting. And if you do long-term fasting, more than three days, you can start to get in a catabolic state where you have muscle breakdown and have your immune system dysregulate. So it's, it's, you know, you gotta be very careful with autoimmune disease for long-term fasting where you're fasting for more than three days. What seems to be very effective is, you know, the various types of intermittent fasting where people either like fast every other day or they or once a week, they take a day to fast or they'll do like an intermittent fat feeding window where they'll fast for 18 hours and eat for six, which is probably one of the most common, commonly used and easiest for patients to do. Um, but fasting will then turn on genes like mTOR and other, other anti-inflammatory pathways, antioxidant pathways that can really help uh, a person heal. And also when you're fasting, you're also getting decreased exposure of food proteins to your immune system. So your immune system gets a break. But actually being in a fasting physiology state, and usually it takes about 14 hours to get into that state, um, you, you can really have some benefits of healing your gut and really calming down autoimmunity. And one of the strategies we actually talk about in our autoimmune puzzle course is using intermittent fasting for, for periods where you have a flare-up and you need to recover. So uh, whether it's an alternate day fast or an 18-6 window fast, those are all things that can be helpful. Okay, next okay. Um, so what, how do you diagnose autoimmunity and what labs do you do primarily to diagnose autoimmunity? You know, for autoimmune diagnosis, it's, it's not like you just do one lab marker and, and you, and you can evaluate autoimmunity. Um, and it's tricky because for the most part, the way autoimmunity is diagnosed is you have an antibody, uh, to your own tissue. So the problem is you can have antibodies, you can have autoimmunity in different tissues and they all require different lab tests. So auto, uh, you know, antibodies to your joints for rheumatoid arthritis are totally different than antibodies you would measure for, let's say thyroid for Hashimoto's or antibodies you would measure for um, the adrenal gland for Addison's disease. And these antibodies are expensive. So it's not like insurance companies really authorize them to just be run randomly. And, and unfortunately have to have like some severe degree of symptoms and disease before before, you know, most people will jump into running them. But for the most part, it's, it's, it's antibodies. In the autoimmune puzzle course, we talk about laboratory tests and antibodies and, and looking at symptoms for different tissues to then, if you're working with your healthcare professional to help decide which antibodies to run. So, you know, you anywhere from neurological autoimmune responses to the brain, to the thyroid, to your joints, to the liver, to the skin, to even um, reproductive tissue, all those uh, have a different clinical expression and different lab markers to measure autoimmunity from. So uh, it's, it's, that's part of the reason why it takes so long where people have autoimmunity to finally get diagnosed. Okay. Um, so how can oxygen deprivation 
I think they mean cause autoimmune reactions like brain fog and cognitive decline. And how do you measure O2 levels, brain O2 levels? Okay, well, oxygen deprivation, if it's severe enough, you get into what's called actual hypoxia state can definitely cause a neuroinflammatory response in the brain. But like physiological oxygen levels, it's not something that has has like an immune significant immune triggering effect. So, for example, you can you can measure what's called tissue perfusion, or you can use pulse ox to 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 get a general idea of what's happening with tissue saturation of oxygen. But there's no major links between that and autoimmune triggers. Um, a lot of people have autoimmune have poor circulation and poor blood flow. Um, so those are one thing. Now we know that there are studies done with people that have sleep apnea and sleep apnea definitely is a f- trigger for autoimmunity. Um, that's really where most of the research is when you're looking at states of hypoxia, low oxygen to the, to the body. So individuals that have sleep apnea tend to have greater flares up of autoimmunity. So that's another key thing you may want to think about. If, if you don't have access to a sleep study right away, one of the things you can do is get like a pulse ox. And, and if your family member, spouse, loved one can put it on your finger when you're asleep, they can get an idea. Like if you're actually getting hypoxic in the middle of the night and normally when you do a pulse ox measurement, you put, you put this pulse ox on your finger, it should be at least uh, preferably 98%. It's getting to be below 95%. Uh, you definitely want to get a sleep study. Okay. Diane's asking, are there supplements to repair the pulmonary there? Yes, there are. So actually antioxidants in general seem to be, so things like extract, what are like alpha lipoic acid, vitamin A and E, all the fat soluble vitamins that have antithion, N-acetylcysteine, like N-acetylcysteine and uh, vitamin A. And, okay, let's add in three. Vitamin E, those three would be what, that have um, pulmonary issues. If you, if you don't have any issues with it, that would be a very good one too. There are some, there are some roles with EMFs in, in autoimmunity, in particular with uh, studies published with neuroinflammation. So they do find that EMFs can activate glial cells and activate neuroinflammation to some degree. Um, it's going to vary from person to person dramatically. There are some people that are extremely sensitive to EMFs, uh, and there's some people that are not. As far as you know, my experience working with autoimmune disease patients, I'm only finding that patients that have some significant neurological autoimmunity be extremely sensitive to EMFs. Like, for example, not getting not seeing rheumatoid arthritis patients with lots of joint swelling and joint inflammation, being exposed to EMFs and having their joints really swell up. But people that have neurological autoimmunity, I mean, they can get around a computer screen or on a phone and they can really immediately notice some degree of symptoms uh, and their brain inflammation can go up. And actually for me, when I see someone tell me that they're extremely sensitive to EMF, that's the first thing I start to run is an autoimmune antibody panel for the brain and see if that's there. So if you do have severe sensitivity to EMFs and you're trying to figure out which antibodies to run, you want to look at neurological autoantibodies, things like myelin basic protein, things like myelin associated glycoprotein. Um, Those are the two main ones. And again, we talk about those in detail in the Ottoman puzzle course, uh, if you you need some direction there. Okay, thanks. So you may comment that depression, you can get depression as a result of overtraining. How slash why does this happen or can this happen? Yeah, so overtraining actually creates an, so overtraining can cause depression and can cause um, your autoimmune disease to flare up. So this is actually a condition in the sports medicine world that is called metabolic overtraining syndrome. And in that uh, field of research, they'll take athletes, for example, once they finish an Ironman or once they finish a long run with, with super athletes, 
and they measure what's happening with their system. Cause you know, what people don't see is when some people finish an Ironman or marathon and they're like not functioning for the next week or two and their body's inflamed, their brain function doesn't work. And at some point, depending on degree of fitness, some degree of physical activity can get you to that same point. So you may not be running the Ironman, but you try to go and run three miles and that's like your body's really your, your, your capacity as if a super athlete was doing an Ironman. But what happens is the, there's inflammatory markers that go up. And uh, the, the key one is something called IL-6, interleukin-6. And, and these things then drive the immune system. And they when they drive the immune system in the brain, they activate cells called neuroglia. When neuroglia get activated, they um, decrease the speed of nerve conductance. So nerve conductance, nerve speed goes down. And that's one of the primary mechanisms about why people get depression. So it's really the inflammatory model of depression. So if you have overtraining syndrome, you just won't feel like you're recovering from workout. Your performance will go down. Your muscles will be inflamed. Your joints will be inflamed. Your brain will be inflamed and uh, your autoimmune disease will flare up. So you really got to, again, make sure you don't cross that overtraining syndrome pattern for yourself. And it's all, all going to be based on your degree of fitness and your own antioxidant level, your own inflammatory status. And that can change over time too. So that's the basic concept between uh, overtraining syndrome. Okay. If the autoimmune disease is not genetic, is it possible to reverse it? So... I don't know if they're saying the meaning reverse meaning remission or reverse meaning yeah. cure it. I'm not sure. It's just... So just so you know, with genes and autoimmune diseases, there's no specific gene specific for any autoimmune diseases. And what they're actually finding is that there's a cluster of genes with a, with a cluster of exposures that then turn on the autoimmune disease response. So it's hard to say that there's no gene response because everything we do has a gene expression, you know, mm -hmm. to some degree. So what they're finding is that there's some autoimmune. So one of the things they look at is they look at twin studies and they look at twin studies and they want to look at how much, um, how, how many, how many autoimmune diseases uh, and the severe autoimmune disease with twins and of different lifestyle exposures happen. For some autoimmune diseases, uh, genes seem to play a big role, and for other ones, they don't. But there is some role with, with, with genes with all autoimmune diseases. Now, as far as reversing, the word reversing is really, you know, again, define what that means. If reversing meaning like it never happened again, like it's totally churned off, that's not really uh, common. Uh, the most common thing is that a person has an autoimmune disease turn on, and then they implement diet, nutrition, lifestyle, remove triggers like we talked about that have enough impact on them where they go into remission and feel like they reversed it. Um, and their swelling and inflammation may go down. For other people, they may not really get to complete remission, but their symptoms can be much less when they follow some diet lifestyle strategies. And this is the part of trying to you know, figure out your own autoimmunity related issues. Um, okay. okay. Um, your, what's your opinion of low delsinotrexone for now? Trexone for inflammation and autoimmunity. So low, low, do, low dose naltrexone LDN therapy yeah. is commonly used with people that have autoimmune diseases. And again, it's one of those things where some people take it and it'll have some impact. Other people take it, they have no impact. And there's a few cases, which is pretty rare, but it has been reported where people take it and they have massive uh, muscle mass loss and uh, and uh, go into a catabolic state and have an adverse effect from it. 
pretty rare, but that's been reported. For most people that take it, they either notice some benefit or or no benefit. And the people that notice some benefit, it tends to kind of uh, wane over time and they kind of go back to where they were. So it seems to have like this honeymoon period of time for people to really have an effect. And then they kind of go back to where, how they were feeling, which is really common with lots of things that affect the immune system from a, uh, anti or immune modulating drug or therapy. So um, it's something to consider if you have autoimmunity. However, it's one of those things also that it, it may be nice to have if you have a flare up. So for example, if I had an autoimmune disease, I wouldn't be against taking low dose naltrexone, but if I were to take it every day, then I don't have something to help me if I get an acute flare up. So if it was for myself, if I was dealing with an autoimmune disease, I would probably keep it for times when I had a flare up. Because once I, if I take it every day, then my immune system is going to kind of modulate to that. It's not going to be as beneficial. So that's, that's, that's kind of, I guess, my input on uh, LDN therapy. Okay. So um, what is your opinion on what could be causing autoimmunity in children who have symptoms of autism? Do you have any ideas on that? Yeah, I mean, the, there's a, the, the world of autism research and autoimmunity is extensive. You would think, oh, they don't know. Oh, no, there's a lot of papers published on it. There are so many mechanisms that are involved with autism and childhood development disorders in particular, um, that if you start to dig into it, even as a skilled researcher, you start to get dizzy. Um, so we definitely know there's an, the genetic and environmental mix, but there isn't any hardcore gene that's ever been associated to just turn on autism. So it's most likely more of an environmental influence. That's the key driving factor. And it even starts with, um, you know, during, during, during fetal development, um, that has an impact. Um, so it's complex. So I, I don't have a good answer for you because I'm still trying to swim through it. And, uh, it's not like one variable. It's, it's a complex scenario. Right. Okay. Uh, so this is a really common question. Does hypothyroidism call, oops, cause autoimmunity disorder or is autoimmunity the cause of hypothyroidism? If the thyroid is the cause of autoimmunity, if getting the thyroid stabilized, does the autoimmunity disorder go away? Okay. It, does it make sense? Yes. Okay. okay. Very common. So hypothyroidism does not directly cause autoimmunity. That's pretty clear. Hypothyroidism can impact your immune system and put you in a greater state of inflammation. And what studies show is that if you do have any kind of autoimmunity and hypothyroidism, if you get your thyroid hormones normalized by let's say taking taking exogenous thyroid hormones, thyroid replacement, that seems to have an anti-inflammatory effect. Um, so, but not everyone that has hypothyroidism develops autoimmunity. So it doesn't work that way. Now, when you look at people that develop autoimmunity, 98, 95% of them have an autoimmune cause being Hashimoto's. So for the most part, if you, the, the mechanism that takes place that we understand um, is that people develop genes that turn on for Hashimoto's where they make antibodies against a protein called thyroid perioxidase or thyroid globulin. And that causes inflammation in the thyroid gland. Thyroid gland gets destroyed. Uh, over a period of time, enough thyroid gland gets destroyed where they end up on what's called hypothyroidism, where the thyroid gland isn't making enough thyroid hormones that body demands. And then when they first go on thyroid hormones, they feel some reduction in their inflammation, but it doesn't cure their underlying autoimmune disease. So 
hypothyroidism itself directly doesn't cause autoimmunity, but if you do have hypothyroidism and you get thyroid hormones, it does have a period of time for a few weeks where it helps calm down inflammation. But then just like LDN, you kind of go back to where you were before, but there's a honeymoon phase of the thyroid hormones when you're in thyroid deficient state having an anti-inflammatory effect. Someone is asking the relationship between estrogen and thyroid. By the way, the next course we're launching in September is a course on Hashimoto's solving the puzzle where we go into all of this in extreme detail. Mm-hmm. But a lot of information. It's a lot of information. Estrogens have the impact of thyroid. You know, yes. estrogens, okay, so estrogens have varying effects on the thyroid and on the autoimmunity. Let's just say we have a thyroid autoimmune disease, which is the most common cause of being hypothyroid. So estrogens can, can, for some people, if they're extremely low, help balance out their immune system. So estrogens, you know, your T cells, your natural killer cells, your immune cells have receptor sites for estrogens and estrogens have the ability to bind to them. And, and, and that for people that are deficient in estrogens can have a modulating effect on their immune system. So that's one thing, but unrelated to the autoimmune part of it, one of the things that can happen with estrogens is there is a protein called thyroid binding globulin that binds to thyroid hormones. Those levels can go up with some, some people that take estrogens. And if your thyroid binding globulin levels go up, um, that makes less available free thyroid hormones available to your receptor sites. And in order for your hormones to bind to receptor site, they have to become free. So the way it works is your thyroid gland makes thyroid hormones in order for these thyroid hormones to get to your tissues it, it synthesizes the thyroid hormones and binds it to a protein called thyroid binding globulin. And then that gets released in the bloodstream. At some point, this thyroid binding globulin level drops and then the free hormone can bind to the receptor and that'll impact your metabolism and so forth. For some people, but not everyone that takes estrogens or things like birth control, oral contraceptives, the estrogens increase their thyroid binding globulin levels and they don't have as much free and they have all these symptoms of weight gain and thyroid and so forth. And in those cases, if, if you suspect that, you should definitely get your thyroid binding globulin levels checked. Okay. Okay. Um, so just confirming, if you have Hashimoto's, is gluten a problem only if you test positive for gluten or is it a must to stop gluten? Yeah. A lot of questions get asked like that. Sure. So if you have, okay, so let's get Hashimoto's. Next question. Hashimoto's and gluten. Yeah. Yes. So gluten testing, gluten testing has lots of variabilities. For the most part, if you have Hashimoto's, you should go up with it. Even if your testing is negative, is, is doesn't show up. And I'll tell you, and I'll tell you why. So if you, if you have Hashimoto's, you should strongly consider just being on a gluten-free diet even if you don't have celiac disease or even if your antibodies don't show up to test positive for gluten. And there's a few reasons for that. One of the reasons is there is a genetic gene type with Hashimoto's, which is these HLA-DQ variants that cross over for gluten sensitivity and Hashimoto's. So just just gene, just genetically with the responsive T cells um, that take place in both Hashimoto's and gluten sensitivity and celiac disease, they, they, they overlap. So that's one reason. The reason you may have gluten antibodies not show up is because the testing is not sufficient enough. So when you look at gluten, um, gluten is a protein and the protein has many, many branches. So think of like, this, this is gluten. And what's commonly checked is one branch, let's say alpha gliadin, but you may have a reaction to gamma gliadin and that's not, that's not been tested for you. Or you may have a reaction to wheat trimagglutinin, which isn't, isn't part of gluten, or you may have a reaction to, instead of uh, gluten, to glutenin, a different protein. And if you 
don't have all the different protein measurements done, which is not a common way to screen for, for gluten unless you go to a specialty lab. Um, like Cyrix is a specialty lab that checks the entire gluten, gluten ran, all the different gluten branches. You may be under the pressure, you're not gluten sensitive, but, but in fact, you really are. So um, I would say even if you don't have a test that shows gluten sensitivity, you should definitely consider being gluten-free with Hashimoto's um, for the most part. So um, there's a question. I can't find it now, but a lady, someone was asking, if you have a gluten sensitivity, are you advised to stay away from like shampoos that have wheat or gluten in them, hair rinses, lotions, that kind of stuff? Yes. So if you're gluten sensitive, you should definitely expose, decrease your exposure to topicals and shampoos that have gluten in there. So there's, a, you know, your, your, your skin is an immune system. It's classified as part of immune system. And there are immune cells on your skin that can trigger immune response through contact. So even, and especially if you notice redness or itching or swelling, that's your, that's your thermal response to it. So um, you could have be using a shampoo and you notice your scalp is a little more sensitive and, you know, it's, it's, you look at it until you see it's a little bit red. It's definitely a trigger. <laughs> so you definitely want to avoid it. And for the most part, you really want to make some effort if you are gluten sensitive to avoid topical exposures as well as just the food you eat. Okay. This person's asking, um, with autoimmune thyroid and low intrinsic factor and insulin resistance, which do you prioritize first? Do you have any kind of protocol of what you want to attack, go for first or hit hard, I guess? Um, you know, if you have multiple things, yeah. it's not, it's hard to say there's, there's always a priority, but it's not like there's a rule of what you would do first. Um, and a lot of times you do them all together. Like you can easily stabilize the blood sugar level as you look at foods that are triggers the, and the, some of the triggers we talked about for army at the same time. So there isn't, there isn't any hardcore standard rules about it. Typically you're sometimes doing multiple things at the same time. Okay. Can you speak on how mold can impact autoimmunity? Definitely. Sure. There's definitely mold can definitely be a trigger for autoimmunity. So mold, will release what are called mycotoxins and mycotoxins will be triggers in, that are airborne that you breathe in activate your lung pulmonary system. And that can be a major trigger for, for autoimmune responses. So um, you can measure these uh, in lab work. So, you know, even your conventional labs like quest lab work, they have mold antibodies and if you're getting exposed to them, your antibody levels will be pretty high. So uh, you also got to be a couple things you have to be careful with. Don't 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 confuse mildew with mold. So you might have mildew in your house. That's not toxic mold. That is a serious trigger. So um, typically, you can get what's called a mold panel and measure antibody responses to see if your immune system is reacting to mold. And if it is, then you got you got to try to find the source. So, so it is a trigger. And if it's, if it's there, you have to find the source and remove it. One of the biggest clues that you may be reacting to molds is if, especially if it's in your home is like, when you leave your home, you go on a trip, you feel dramatically better. That's like one of the key clinical findings that when you're out of your environment, you start to do a lot better. It could be your work environment. It could be your um, home environment. If you just do better on weekends, maybe it's your work environment or wherever you are during the weekday. So those are big clues, but yeah, there are connections with mold to triggering autoimmunity. Uh, it's accepted in the immunology world. Uh, and, uh, you know, it can be tested. 
Okay, so what is the difference between deaminated and antigliadin antibodies? On my labs, deaminated antibodies are low, but antigliadin antibodies are high. Yeah. They're confused. They've been gluten and grain-free for over a year. Can you explain a little bit what the difference is? Yeah. The words get thrown around a little bit. Sure. There's lots of, so gluten has different branches, like alpha-gliadin, gamma-gliadin, alpha-17-bergliadin, and then gluten gets converted and metabolized into deaminated gliadin, which is another form of gliadin. Mm -hmm. Your gut uses the enzyme transglutaminase to convert gluten to deaminated gliadin. So any of these types of branches of gluten or, or metabolite or conversions of the gluten protein can be um, a protein that can trigger the immune response. So if you, if you have a reaction to any one of them, it just means you're gluten sensitive. So if you react to deaminated gliadin, then you are gluten sensitive. And it can, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, and also if you react to deaminated gliadin, you're more likely to react to processed grains because um, when they like um, take grains and wheat and make pretzels out of them or processed packaged food out of them, they use enzymes that deaminate the wheat to deaminated gliadin. You're getting a really high load of deaminated gliadin. So your reaction to like a deaminated processed pretzel may be very severe mm -hmm. compared to food that did, didn't go through that food processing period for the process. So manufacturing machines that process wheat um, get added deaminated so that wheat doesn't stick to their machinery. So all it means is if you have deaminated gland, you're reacting to a metabolized form of wheat, but you, you can't eat it. And you're probably going to have a greater reaction to foods that are processed. Okay, cool. Okay, so are cooked veggies better for your gut versus raw veggies? Does it, does it matter? Is there a difference? What do you, what's your thoughts? Cooked versus raw veggies. Yeah. Depends on what, what you're looking for. <laughs> okay. So the fiber content is still going to be beneficial whether it's cooked or raw. You know, your micro, the micronutrient mineral content is going to be less when it's cooked. But for the most part, they're all going to have beneficial benefits. Either one you use will be fine. It's not like you get no minerals if you cook it. You just don't get as much than if it's in a raw form. Both cooked and raw are going to give you soluble, insoluble fiber that will change your microbiome diversity and help bulk your, your bowel for better movement and have beneficial effects, beneficial effects on your health. So either one will work. Okay, so some, I'm going to combine a couple questions here. Okay. People are asking, um, are the reactions to tomatoes, bell peppers, like nightshades, is that, are those reactions different than reactions that you would have if you said it had maybe gluten or dairy? Yes. They're or what's the, how there do you are, figure that out? There are different reactions. So another course I put together, Dr. Kenyon's is food sensitivity solving the puzzle. And we, we talk about all these different details. Yeah. Um, it's a really detailed course. It's really good. Yeah. Sorry. It, it, it is. It's, it's so, you know, the response to, to gluten can be different. For example, if you have celiac disease, not celiac, it's a T cell response. The reaction to nightshades is driven not by foods activating T cells, but it's really driven by alkaloids that trigger um, antigen presenting cells and activates how and, and, and stimulates their activation throughout the body through their inflammatory response. And then reaction to lectin seems to be really more to do with what's called agglutination where proteins stick together and become new antigens that trigger the immune response. So the, so the response to gluten versus a celiac, non-celiac, the response to nightshades and the response to lectins are, are all actually different immunological mechanisms. And um, 
some people will be extremely sensitive to lectins and some people will not. And some people will be extremely sensitive to nightshades and they may not. So that's where the individuality uniqueness comes in, but they are different immune response. Okay, cool. Um, so what sort of infections are most common in tri triggering autoimmunity, like H. pylori fungal, or are there infections, most common infections that we are worried about it. Yeah. The most serious infections for autoimmunity are for sure viruses. Uh, viruses can definitely be a, a trigger for autoimmune disease and, and one of the most severe reactions. So, so that's what you see in the literature. There's, there's, and then on the other hand, parasites seem to be, believe it or not, the most protective. So uh, some parasites uh, really actually dampen the autoimmune response. And in areas of the world where there's lots of parasites, um, they see decreased expression of autoimmune diseases and what they do with epidemiological studies. And uh, uh, there's some research being done with some of the substrates, some of these parasites releasing that actually activate what are called regulatory T cells in the gut that then compound the autoimmune response. And they're, they've isolated that chemical that parasites release and are using it in drug trials now. In animal studies, it's coming down autoimmune disease. So pathogens, some pathogens may be protective. On the protective side, there tend to be some parasites that can do that. And then the most severe ones will be, will be viruses. Again, it doesn't mean just because you, so you have to understand something. The virus has a gene and you have a gene. <laughs> And the combination of certain genes together can be the factor. So it's not based on, for example, let's take Epstein-Barr. Epstein-Barr virus may have a different effect with 10 different people that have Hashimoto's and 10 different people that have MS based on their other genes. Some people will have the host gene of the virus and the host gene of Epstein-Barr combined. It'll be a very inflammatory triggering response and other people won't. So it won't be the autoimmune disease itself and it won't be the pathogen itself, but it's really a mixture of the genes of the pathogen genes of the host and there's some vulnerabilities that seem to take place so then of course people are asking so then do you not recommend the parasites be treated i don't know <laughs> this is a controversial issue uh typically you know what i've learned myself because you know if, if you're trying to read and, and interpret what scientists are finding uh and do is called evidence-based model you can clearly see data showing that certain parasites are protective. And there are people that do helmet therapy where they actually ingest parasites to calm down their autoimmune disease. And there are some benefits for some people with that. It's, 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 it's more complicated than, than just it's always bad or good. So what I've learned in my practice, what I've transitioned into over my career if they have autoimmunity and I've experienced, if they have just, if you do random GI panels with people, some people will have parasites. A lot of people have parasites when they actually test. And sometimes when you treat them and get rid of them, they get, get, they get a flare up. They do get worse. That's definitely something anecdotally I've seen in my own observation with over and over again. So what I've started to do now is I, I, I just explain this to, to my patients and decide what they want to do because there's some evidence both ways. And I tend to lean towards having some kind of intervention done to deal with parasites if their lab tests show that if they have gastrointestinal symptoms and if they don't have gastrointestinal symptoms i'm not but you know it's not as clear as we would think so and that's really you know clinical practices you don't always have black and white you have these shades of gray and uh sometimes it's not as clear as you would like to 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 hope it wish it was
Right. Okay. Last one. This is maybe something for another day, but can you give us your top things? So if you get a flare, what are the top things you do to calm it down? Well, if you get a flare up. Yeah. Yes. And this is actually, we have a whole section on me puzzle recovery. You know, how to, what do you, all the steps required for recovering from a right. flare up. So for the most part, when you get a flare up, the first thing you do is to look back and go, what was triggering? What was the triggering event? If you can identify a triggering event, whether it was smoke, air pollution, sleep, blood sugar spike, stress, combination of those factors altogether, that's something you want to be aware of. Because if you're suffering from autoimmune disease, you're constantly trying to figure out what your body is very vulnerable to and what, 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 can, what can trigger it. And as soon as you can make those connections, the easier it is for you to, to, to avoid those and, and, and get into remission. And then the second part of it is um, you can do things like we talked about, uh, intermittent fasting to help recover. Uh, you can just do one-day fast intermittent fasting to help just calm down the inflammation and turn out some anti-inflammatory genes. And then taking um, basically lots of antioxidants, anti-inflammatory compounds like uh, N-acetylcysteine, glutathione, green tea extract, pomegranate, the, hopefully things that you know you, you can tolerate without any adverse reactions and really increasing those levels and uh, trying to get rest is a critical part of this as well. So at some point, once you have the flare up, rest and recovery are a big part of it. That's the general part of it. I mean, it's much more complex complex than that. I think we have like a section that's about 45 minutes on the topic that goes into this stuff with more detail, but that's that's the short answer. Right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you everyone for joining us. I hope you found this talk useful to you and please check out uh, Autoimmunity Solving the Puzzle course or Gut Health Solving the Puzzle or Food Sensitive Solving the Puzzle, Dr. K News. These are programs we invested a lot of time with uh, videos, uh, menus, uh, workbooks to help walk you through the process and hope you got some useful information out of today's uh, chat. Thanks again. Bye. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.